Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. So I was on vacation with my family. We were in the United States, and we were traveling to a few different places, and we had decided one of the stops we wanted to, to make was in New York City, beautiful city. Specifically, we wanted to go to Manhattan. And so what's the best way to see any city if you're trying to do it real quick? It's a double-decker bus tour. You know, you can hop on, hop off. Uh, Well, to be honest, my parents booked the tour. I was 13 years old. I really didn't care for anything they were talking about. Like the architecture of the buildings, when it was built, and the construction they used and everything. At that point, as a 13-year-old, I really didn't care. I really didn't care where the celebrities were living and maybe, oh, we might see a sighting here or there. I didn't care about that. And for sure, I really didn't care which bar in New York was the inspiration for the, the hit sitcom Cheers. Not on my radar. Was not interested at that at all. But I did have a brother. Now, my brother and I sat there, entertained each other. You know, we at least did our best to have a good time. And then... I don't know if it was because we just ran out of jokes or because the traffic made us slow down in a section of the city or maybe even the tour guide, their cadence changed a little bit and they were getting a little bit more interesting. But for some reason, when we hit this section of city called Soho, my ears started actually paying attention to what the tour guide was telling us. And Soho is a really interesting part of New York City. Here's a picture of it in early 1970s. And uh, it was built as a manufacturing center. And it, a lot of the buildings were housing um, manufacturing and, and industry in the World War II era. And then right after that, I guess because it was cheaper to find uh, uh, rent elsewhere. Those manufacturing places moved to other parts of the the country and maybe even overseas. And these buildings, they had a hard time finding new, new people to take the lease. And so they sat empty and vacant and the whole neighborhood started to get a bit run down. In fact, it was known as Hell's 100 Acres. It was getting a little bit rough, but then some artists started to move in. I mean, The number one reason they did was because they could squat in these empty buildings. The rent was cheap. It was free. So that was the number one reason. And artists are always looking for for, to save a few bucks. Uh, And also, because they were taller buildings that were built for manufacturing, they actually had large windows, which helped with natural sunlight. I mean, they didn't have to pay the electricity bill for the lighting anyway. So... That helped them with a place to work and live. They were living in these lofts. And this is kind of the idea where artist lofts came from. Well, this started gaining traction. This started becoming a cultural hub. And so there was a number of artists, famous ones that moved in. Andy Warhol, the composer Philip Glass, choreographer Twyla Tharp, and even David Bowie lived in this section of the city. Instead of the armpit of Manhattan, this was becoming the cultural hub. 
and it started picking up steam and energy. And of course, you can kind of guess where this is going. As the property values rose, the artists were bumped out. They couldn't afford to live there anymore. And now <laughs> this building is a Best Buy and this building is uh, Urban Outfitters. So uh, things have changed quite a bit. But something hit me there when I was sitting on that double-decker tour bus and I was listening to this tour guide tell us about Soho. You know, I, I was a 13-year-old. I just started getting into music. I was just learning the drums and I was loving it. And I was just starting to get interested in the arts. And something spoke to me when we were going into a city that had been transformed, a part of the city was absolutely transformed just because artists had decided to move in. Now, just before that sounds like the ending of today's teaching, uh, let's actually get into what we're talking about today. And you might guess that we are talking about the arts. And uh, let me give you a rundown. If you're not in, into the arts or if you've never been around art and artists, uh, you could be kind of a little bit confused of what I mean. So let me give you a rundown. These are the arts that we're kind of considering as art and artists here. And there's a lot. Some of the sections are here. I'm going to blast through all, all the ones that we have. So in fine art, we have painters, sculptors, photographers, filmmakers, and illustrators. In performance art, we have music, theater, dance, material art, design, and craft. We have jewelry, pottery, glass, and fabric. Literature, we got poetry, prose, lyrics, artisans, Carpentry, blacksmith, furniture mating, design, graphic design, industrial design, environmental interior design, architecture, digital media, we've got graphic design, animation, game design, and then probably the one we all enjoy the most, the culinary arts. Chef, we're looking at you. Thank you. You make everyone's favorite art. Now, when we're talking about this, the summary I would say is we're talking about the people whose occupation, their vocation, their job, their life is devoted to making beauty come into our world with their hands. Now, for those of you who aren't necessarily very comfortable with the arts, hanging with me, don't, don't worry, we're not going to get heebie-jeebie or, or wooey-wooey-wooey. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. But... Uh, I promise you there's something for you in, in uh, today's teaching. We'll get to that in a minute. But let's dive into the text that we're talking about today. God is outlining to Moses in this section of Exodus a plan for a mobile worship center that they would use as they're traveling between Egypt, the land that they're coming from, to the land that God had promised them that they would be living in. This mobile worship center is also known as the Tent of Meeting or the tabernacle. And just as a side note, if I say, the, if I say temple instead of tabernacle, forgive me because uh, they both start with a T and uh, my brain got confused multiple times when even just writing today's talk. So let me get into this text. When, we're, when we pick up where we're going to be reading in just a moment, it comes right after five long, very detailed sections of scripture that are outlining how to build this tabernacle, this place where they're going to be meeting with God. And if you're reading the Bible from the very beginning to this point, this is where it changes from a lot of stories and, and a lot of uh, a real captivating narrative to all of a sudden it's talking about like how to build stuff. And so it's 
it's a little bit more dense here, maybe a little bit tougher for us as as people that are English speaking in, in North America to connect to. And it changes from a description, five different uh, sections of describing how to build the temple and all the things that were used in the temple to a sixth section where it talks about the people who would be doing the work. And let's read it here. Then the Lord said to Moses, look, I have specifically chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, grandson of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. He is a master craftsman, expert in working with gold, silver, and bronze. He is skilled in engraving and mounting gemstones and in carving wood. He is a master at every craft. This guy sounds really talented. I mean, he's, he's ticking a lot of those boxes of the arts that we are already talking about. And I have personally appointed Aholiab, son of... <laughs> I don't really know how to say this one. It's a, about as much as I can say on that. He's from the tribe of Dan to be his assistant. Moreover, I have given special skill to all the gifted craftsmen. Now, just a side note, craftsmen here includes craftswomen too. One of the the beautiful things we don't have time to get into is that the entire community, craft community, artist community was involved, even the women, which is really special that they were included in, in that era. So they can make all the things that I have commanded you to make. Really, really cool scripture. You've got the artist community are the people who are highlighted, named, mentioned, and invited into being a part of this critical moment in the story for for Israel. Now, it's good for you to know that this comes after 50 chapters, if you're reading from the very beginning of the Bible, 50 chapters of Genesis and 31 more chapters of Exodus. And there's already a bit of a pattern developing if you've been reading from the very beginning. And that pattern is this. God comes close to people. He invites them to be a part of what he's doing. And then they mess up. And it's it's actually disappointing. He invites them to be close, invites them to be part of it, and then they mess up time and time again. They always let him down. So when we get to this point, uh, we, you know, it's, the pattern has been set for Bezalel and his crew. There's a good chance that they're going to let God down again. They've been invited to be a part of something. And man, after like five chapters of detailed descriptions of all the stuff they have to do, it was going to be a pretty public display of failure if they messed it up. Everyone would understand. So if you don't have a lot of hope for Bezalel and his, and his crew when you're reading this, you, you know, it's expected. But in stark contrast to all the previous episodes, all the, the different stories where people let down God, the craftspeople, the artists, they actually pull it off. It's, it's actually pretty special. So the author of Exodus wants to tell us this. He wants to explain to us that these artists pull it off. But he does it in a really strange way. 
uh, it almost feels like he's being a little bit lazy or something. I don't know. Like, instead of just describing, okay, here's all the instructions. Now, here's them in action. This is how they did it. And Bezalel, he came at this this way. And he, he was very thoughtful in how he approached this. And this is the tool that he used. And instead of pri- providing variety for us, when, he, when it talks about how they do the work, it actually, it feels like he just hits copy and paste. Let me show you an example right here. This is Exodus 26. These are the instructions. Make the tabernacle from 10 curtains of finely woven linen. Decorate the curtains with blue, purple, and scarlet thread and with skillfully embroidered cherubim. There's like chapters and chapters and chapters of this. So those are the instructions. Now you'd think it'd be a little bit different, but look, look at this, this as how it's captured, the actions that they did to build the tabernacle. The skilled craftsmen made 10 curtains of finely woven linen for the tabernacle. Then Bezalel decorated the curtains with blue, purple, and scarlet thread and with skillfully embroidered cherubim. Like, it almost feels like he's cheating. Now, that's not just one time. It's over and over and over again. Let's look at another one. Again, from chapter 26, these are the instructions. These 10 curtains must all be exactly the same size, 42 feet long and six feet wide. This is what it captures how they did it. And 10 curtains were exactly the same size. Sorry, all 10 curtains were exactly the same size, 42 feet long and six feet wide. Copy and paste. And if you don't, if you're not getting the gist of it, let's do one more just to settle it down, okay? So again, the instructions from chapter 26, join five of these curtains together to make one long curtain, then join the other five into a second long curtain. And (laughs) same thing again. Five of these curtains were joined together to make one long curtain, and the other five were joined together to make a second long curtain. So again, at this point, if you're a North American in 2022, you're scratching your head, wondering if you've mistakenly flipped back from chapter 36 to 26 when you're reading this, and you're a little bit confused. What's the point of this? Well, when we hit sections like this, I found this little phrase that you might have heard used by some of our other teaching team before. I found it to be really helpful. The Bible is written for you. It helps us but it was not written to you. We're not the original audience. We're not the original culture that it was written in. So we have to dive in a little bit to understand why there is this repetition. Well, this is a literary choice. This is a poetic device. There's some art going on here. This would have been accessible to that culture that it was written in. Let me try to explain it this way. The painstaking effort to copy every single sentence, word for word, in the text is showing us the painstaking detail that went into producing every single article for the tabernacle. And the entire picture, the five chapters of details, and then the five chapters of actions of them doing it, it feels a little bit overwhelming, the the amount of detail and the amount of text. And that's the feeling you should get. It's trying to give us a collective impact of the entire amount of work that was done, the task that what they had to do, and the way they accomplished it. It's, it should feel like a lot, a lot of work to do. And don't forget this too. This is something that helped me. 
when we see copy and paste today, that doesn't cost us anything. But copying and pasting was literally a scribe, which was a pretty good profession. You, they were expensive. It was the parchment paper, which wasn't affordable. It was expensive. And all the, the, the costs it would take to have someone copy, not just once, but every time that scroll was copied, they'd have to copy all that text again. This was an investment. This was something that the author of Exodus thought was worth it to have all this text repeated for us to, to communicate the idea that they're trying to communicate. And, and here's what I would say. It's communicating this is a rare moment of success. Bezalel and his crew pull it off. That's a big deal. So they wanted to capture the entire weight of that. There was no moral letdown. There's no attempts to cut corners. There's never a moment where they just kind of go off track and then they get back on. No, and if you know the context that this is written in, even a couple chapters before, people are going all over the place. For them to stay on track and do a good job is a big deal. So how do they do it? How does Bezalel and the crew pull it off? Well, here's their secret. I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, grandson of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. It's quite obvious for the rest of that text how skilled Bezalel is. He's got hands that are fit for the job, but he's got a heart, just like yours and just like mine, that is easily distracted or sidelined by other affections. But God has filled him with his spirit. And that keeps him close to God, keeps him on task, keeps him focused on the mission at hand. Now this is really special. We see the spirit of God used many times in, in, in the Bible. But this early in the Bible, it's really rare for the Holy Spirit to be with someone like this. It's actually only the second time it's happened from Genesis up to this point in Exodus. And most other times that we read about it in the Old Testament or the, the Hebrew uh, sacred texts, the Torah, the only time that we really see it there is really with priests, prophets, or kings. Important people, significant people, spiritually important people. Those are the only time we see it. But Bezalel isn't that. He's not any of those things. He's not a spiritually significant person. He's someone who works with his hands, gets his hands dirty, making things. But still, God chose to come close to him. He named him, said he wanted to come close to him, and he filled him with his spirit. And then he set him loose to make Now, this must be important work if God's going to go through all that effort, right? So what work? What's the purpose of the work? What is the grand design of this tabernacle? What is the point of it? What is he trying to do through this tabernacle? Let me sum it, this way, sum it up this way. God chooses to partner with Bezalel to bring beauty and order in the wilderness where there is wildness and chaos by constructing a spiritual oasis where God will come close to humans again. 
again? Well, where do we have a blueprint for God coming close to people again? Or the first time? We actually have to go pretty far back. There's no record of it before Exodus that's really significant until you get all the way back to chapter one, Genesis, the very beginning, the garden in Eden. And if you think I'm reading too much into it, the features of the tabernacle are intentionally designed to speak Eden, to to be representing a kind of Eden. You know, all the commentaries I read, they mention it, it is the feature. And if you want to read a book that kind of helps unpack this, I'd recommend you checking out Garden City by John Mark Comer in terms of the imagery and the symbolism and what that speaks to us today in terms of how important those Eden symbols and what happens in Eden, how important that is to us today. But the tabernacle itself is dripping with these, the design elements that are bringing imagery from Eden, the fabric choices, the colors, the imagery, the symbolism of each article they were to make. And here's just one example. There's many, but one that I thought was fascinating that I'd love to show with you, share with you. So this is kind of a blueprint view of the tabernacle. And there was a fence that went around the entire outer structure, and that was the courtyard. And then inside that was the building itself, which was the tabernacle, and that was covered. But then inside of that, to one end, was what is known as the Holy of Holies. And this is like the hot spot. This is the, the spiritual significant zone. And the closer you get to that Holy of Holies, the closer you're getting to the presence of God, the closer you're getting to where he is kind of centered. Now, if you step back and you look at the way Eden is described in Genesis, there's actually a little bit of a design that's, that's being uh, brought in here. In Genesis, Eden is this entire region. And then within Eden, there is a garden. And then within the garden, there is a tree, the tree of life. And that is the spiritually significant. That's the, the, the hot spot in Eden where God is closest to his people. Very fascinating. And that's not enough for the, for the, for the author of Exodus. He's like, you might miss it, or maybe he's just uh, amping it up. Uh, He wants to design the actual text where he's talking to you. He wants to design it so that even the way he designs the text speaks Eden. It's it's fascinating. I love this. So let's use Genesis as our pattern here. In Genesis chapter 1, where God is setting up this space where he will be present with humans. Keep that in mind. Sounds like the tabernacle. The text is divided up into seven days where God does distinct work. And each day he brings order from chaos and fills what was empty with life. And the way he does it, this is my favorite, just by speaking. Each day starts with this phrase, and God said. Man, it just speaks to the power and the... And the the, the majesty of God for him to be able to speak things into existence like that. Now, six times in the story, God says, and six times creation happens. Six different days. On the seventh day, God introduces rest into the rhythm of his creation. But let's take a, a step back to day six. 
On day six, he fills the land with his voice. He brings creatures into existence, including humans. And the narrative later on says that he fills them with his spirit, with his breath. It's the same word. It's this Hebrew word, ruach. It's a good one, good one to say, a hard one to say. And then he calls them to join in his work, to participate with what he's doing in Eden, making a place where humans and God could be close together. And I love this. After day seven, God still stays close. It's beautiful. He invites them in. He chooses to be close to them, fills them with his spirit, with his breath, and then he sets them loose in the garden to make. That's our blueprint. That's what Exodus is pointing to. So let's go to Exodus and let's look at it. The literary device here is similar to what was used in Genesis. Remember I mentioned those five blocks of descriptions of the tabernacle and all the things that would be used to to make the tabernacle? Well, that's five sections out of seven. On the seventh day, guess what it talks about? Sabbath. (laughs) It's implementing and instituting Sabbath, uh, Sabbath day for the people of Israel, a day of rest. But on the sixth day, think back to, to, to Eden when God made humans and calls them into existence, call them to be the, his partner. The sixth de, uh, description in Exodus, God calls his, uh, his partners, Bezalel and all of them to be part of it. But this is one of the most beautiful things. Each of those seven sections, guess how they're marked out? Guess how you can tell they're a, a new section? by this phrase, the Lord said to Moses. How cool is that? It's tying directly to what was used in Eden. So this sixth statement, going on the sixth day, you can see how it's, it's here. The Lord said to Moses, look, I have specifically chosen Bezalel, son of Uri. The Lord said to Moses, it is tying back to to the garden, tying back to Eden, saying, listen, I am choosing to be close to you. This might not be Eden we're making, but this is the closest closest we have been since. Just like in the garden, God calls the makers close to himself. He breathes his spirit into Bezalel. And then he sets them loose to make a mini Eden in the desert. But think about this. That sets off a bit of a cycle where this mobile mini Eden in the desert, all of a sudden, when they, when they build it, it becomes a beacon of light that invites others to come close to God. It's subtle. It's brilliant. It's poetic. The way it's written is art. And I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this when you're reading the Bible, if you've ever had a chance to read it. It is art. It is literature. It's a book. It's actually a collection of books. It's ancient, Middle Eastern, sacred literature. And even if you take away the spiritual significance of of the text, this is probably the most influential and profound collection of words ever. And now... 
how would God choose to write the Bible? How do you think it was written? Well, there might be a bit of a pattern developing here. God chooses partners and he comes close to them. He empowers them with his Holy Spirit. And then he sets them loose to write these texts. And then what happens? Once those texts are written, what do they do? They call us to be close to God. This is God's chosen method of revealing himself. This is the pattern. God chooses to be close to people. He fills them with his spirit. He sets them loose on the earth to make. And then what we make? Well, hopefully it caused people to see God, that, a God that wants to be close to them. So what about you and me? Well, if you're an artist, let me talk to you for a second. I hope this is a healthy moment for you to feel seen. I know artists aren't always highlighted like this. And artists, artisans in the craft community aren't just supporting actors in the, the texts in the Bible often. They're supporting characters often in our culture today. In our context in Toronto, they're quietly working in the background, making our city more beautiful, more livable, more human. And they often are just go going unseen in the background to make it. So can I speak to you artists for a second? I want to say on behalf, if you're part of our church family, thank you. When you partner with our creator to create, you are carrying his value of bringing beauty and meaning to our lives. You remind us that we are humans, not just creatures. You are helping us slow down, be patient, and stay curious. You are teaching us to live in wonder. You are a created being that is creating things that points us to our creator. Now, church family, if you're a guest, if you're not part of the One Church TO family, give me a moment to talk to our church family here. Can we, can we commit to making this church family a place where artists can show up as artists? I know artists can be unique. Sometimes they're a little bit confusing. But here's something about artists. They're just as broken as you and me. They're not more broken than anybody. But they wear it on their sleeves a little bit better than we do. In fact, some of them can't help. They, they can't hide it. And when they wear it on their sleeves, it actually helps give a voice to many things that we're feeling or we're experiencing. We benefit from that. But when their work is done in a God-honoring way, there's room for it to be healthy, moving, and honest. That sometimes makes us uncomfortable. But that's not always bad, is it? So can we make this a place for artists to be artisty? Can we do that? Then we can watch them create as our creator calls them close to himself, empowers them with his spirit, and then sets them loose to make. I want to take a moment as our church family to commission the artists in our community, if you let me. Artists, receive this. This is for you right now. God has chosen to be close to you, just like he chose to be close to Bezalel. He has filled you with his spirit in wisdom and understanding and knowledge to do the task. To work with paint and canvas, melody and harmony, clay and glaze, with your movements, with your voice, 
with your actions, with your writing, with your hands. And he has set you loose on the earth, so go and create alongside your creator. Okay, that's the artist. What about the rest of us? Well, we're all, let's, let's just acknowledge something. We're all on a spectrum of art interest here. You have the patrons of the arts, people who are supporting financially and, and purchasing and everything for the artist. You have art aficionados, people who love experiencing art. You have people who are maybe art indifferent. And then way on the other end, you have people who are maybe a little bit art phobic. But you probably know it. Even if you're art phobic, you know it already. God has wired you to enjoy creativity. We all thrive on it when we experience it. But different things resonate with different, different people, different colors, different tones. We all need more than just information and data to be a fully alive human being. Think of your interactions with the original artist and his work in creation. The song of a bird. That bird is not just transmitting information to another bird. The reflection of a sunset on a still lake. Here in Ontario, we get to enjoy a lot of that. The smell of a blooming flower opening at dusk. I experienced that just a couple weeks ago. There are moments everywhere where creation is giving testimony to its creator. So can I encourage you, maybe even this week, take steps, open your awareness, it's all around us to enjoy the beauty of creation and do it in a way that brings life to your heart. And maybe you want to take step two. Step two would be enjoying the creation of a created being from its creator. So art that our artists have been creating. Enjoy some art. And uh, you might, there's two opportunities. If you're watching this at uh, the time of release, uh, we're going to be going into a conversation on Wednesday that you can join with us live or you can watch the replay. Or we're going to a field trip to the AGO. And if you don't make it to that, just go to the AGO Wednesday nights. It's always free. Lean in. And you may sense this is coming already. You have to lean in because either way, you are already partnering with him in his greatest piece of art. As an early follower of, of Jesus, Paul put it this way in his letter to the Ephesians. For we are God's masterpiece. That's you. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Yes, you have been chosen too, you masterpiece you. And God longs to be close to you. And you have his spirit. So set yourself loose on this earth and live out your life as a masterpiece. Maybe I could just take a moment and commission everybody right now. Go make that killer spreadsheet with the perfect formula. Go make that mortise and tenon joint that looks like magic. It's invisible even before you seal it or cock it. Go make a moment in a classroom as you step away from your lesson plan to include an alternative learning style. Go make those beautiful, clean lines in the pavement. We all enjoy those. Go create a moment from behind the cache where you see somebody's first smile of the day, even behind the mask. Go and create a moment 
with your grandchild. Go you, yes, even you with that Microsoft PowerPoint slide deck, even Microsoft can be used to image our creator by us. And you know, each of us knows when our heart comes to life, when we feel it's the reason he's placed us on this earth, that's his spirit alive and at work in us to live the life that he's called us to live. I love the way that pastor, author, and artist, Erwin McManus phrases it in his book, The Artisan Soul. Recommend you reading it. And let's close with this idea. Like a master artist, God entrusts us with the critical phase in the process we call life. This leads to the most important question. What is your idea of you? Who is it that you have decided to become? If your greatest work of art is the life you live, and ultimately, life is a creative act, what life will you choose to leave behind as your masterpiece? Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time. Thank you.